what we currently have, I think, as you pointed out, is a, a sort of hodgepodge of, of different uh, different laws, precedent, uh, established practice, which means that it's very hard to, to know precisely where on different issues we, we stand. Welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Tom Brake, the head of Unlock Democracy, was my guest on today's show. Unlock Democracy are campaigning to give Britain a codified and written constitution and reinvigorate our relationship with democracy and government. We covered what a written constitution would mean and why we should want one, the idea of citizens' assembly, and the lack of open debate and discussion in our society today. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Tom Brake. So, Tom, uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Well, thank you. And my apologies for my late arrival. Oh, don't worry. Like I said, I was just driving myself crazy on Twitter anyway. So uh, so you are from uh, Unlock Democracy. So do you want to explain what, what Unlock Democracy is, just for, for people who haven't heard of it, and give, give, give them like a, a basis or an idea of what the organization is, is about? Absolutely. So Unlock Democracy is a membership organization. And what we campaign for is our ultimate objective is to secure a written constitution for the United Kingdom. But there are other aspects to our campaigning. So, for instance, we campaign for transparency and accountability in government, uh, fair elections, and a whole host of reform-type issues such as reform of the House of Lords. But our ultimate objective uh, is to secure a written constitution. Many people may, in fact, know of our predecessor organization, uh, which was Charter 88, which is probably better known. And one of my jobs as director is to make sure we achieve the same profile as, as Charter 88 had. Okay. So why? what would be your main case for, for giving us a written constitution? Because um, one, of, one of the quotes that forever stuck with me from my uh, A-level politics was that uh, America is thrashing around in an 18th century straitjacket with regards to their constitution, that they're, they're stuck because of the, the very solid and codified nature of it, that they have been unable to adapt their institutions and conventions rapidly enough to deal with the way the world has changed over the past 250 years. And, and one of the advantages that we frequently wrote about and, and discussed was that Britain in their uncodified sort of very loose I don't know if I don't even know if you could call it a constitution as such but our our, our sort of arrangement of of um, conventions and institutions that makes up the the way that we run our our democracy is the the flexibility of it is one of the the virtues of it and one of the real advantages of it like why would you say that's not the case well, I think one of the f- flexibility of course can be a weakness and and we saw this in relation to 
uh, Boris Johnson's plans to close down Parliament. And in a written constitution, for instance, you could make it very clear that the Prime Minister did not have the power to do that. Other things that could be made clear in a written constitution is, for instance, that the UK would not uh, seek to break international law. There are the other sort of aspects of a written constitution that could be included would be to sort of lock in the, the, the rights that Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have as separate nations within the United Kingdom. What we currently have, I think, as you pointed out, is a, a sort of hodgepodge of, of different, uh, different laws, precedent, uh, established practice, which means that it's very hard to, to know precisely where on different issues we, we stand. Now, obviously, I suspect that the if we were to introduce a written constitution, it would be substantially more detailed than uh, the, the, the US, for instance, and would be more modern, if I can put it that way, in terms of its, its content. But I think the final thing I would say about it, and this is critical to what Unlocked Democracy is trying to secure, is that this written constitution is something that would be arrived at through a, a citizens assembly process. So in other words, it wouldn't be uh, politicians who are writing it or drafting it, it would be uh, in effect, you know, the equivalent of 12, 12 people from the Clapham Omnibus who sit on a jury, there would be 200 people uh, chosen at random, but to be representative of the United Kingdom who would sit on a body that would work out what we wanted to include in our constitution because you know we could have a, a a limited constitution or for instance we could have one that said that people were entitled to access to food and housing some countries have that in their constitutions we don't mm. now the citizens assembly idea is one that I've, I've come across kind of more and more over the past few years um, I first came across it when I did an interview with uh, Jamie Pye, who's uh, the editor of Northern Slant. It's like a just a news and commentary outlet in in Northern Ireland, um, and he had done done some research on on the effectiveness of it and how it would function, and just sort of scoped out the idea. But then, sort of over the last like year or two, I've just I've heard more and more and more about it. Um, one of the the highest profile examples is that. Uh, is Extinction Rebellion actually there? They're calling for a citizens' assembly in order to deal with with climate change, and I I, I really love the idea. Actually, I think I think that like, quite often people dismiss uh, ordinary people's uh, ability to like genuinely comprehend or understand politics or or democracy or or concepts like that when. I, I genuinely think if you sit people down and and run them through it and give them a like a fair look at both sides of an argument that that people can generally generally be pretty reasonable but it, it, how realistic is it to really see that put into into place in the uk because again i've seen it from like from a lot of of i don't know if you call them fringe groups but groups that are maybe outside the very mainstream of british politics how how likely do you think it would be to be able to get that kind of assembly put together in the uk and like what do you think it would require for people to to actually accept that as a, a, a potential idea to reform our democracy? Well, I think the people who would have to accept this as an idea for reforming our democracy would probably have to be politicians, because I think the, the desire for it is there amongst the public. And we've seen that uh, around the world, for instance. So in, in France, the Climate Assembly that they established 
Uh, we've had our own equivalent in terms of uh, six select committees of the UK Parliament who established a, a climate a sort of a climate panel uh, to discuss climate issues. Um, there are a number of local authorities that have done this on a much smaller scale, so close to where, where I live. Uh, Kingston Council, for instance, put together a, a, a citizens' assembly to look at the issue of air quality. So uh, this is happening more and more. And what it does, I think, successfully is re-establish people's interest in decision-making processes and gives them a bit of trust back in terms of they can they can have be part of that decision-making process and arrive at decisions that are are then acted on and i guess that is the critical part because there's no there's not much point having a citizen assembly at the end of which uh, the politicians say well thank you that was a very interesting exercise and now we're going to go off and do something different because that um, you know that immediately demolishes the the purpose of it but i agree with the point that you make that there might be concern that uh, perhaps if if uh, matters were left in the hands of a citizens assembly that the solutions that came forward might be uh, weird and wonderful but in practice that isn't the output from the citizens assemblies that we've seen and it was interesting that um, during the, the sort of the, the Brexit um, period, there was a, a sort of citizen assembly that was set up to look at the issue of immigration, one of the hottest topics uh, of, um, uh, of the Brexit, uh, Brexit campaigning. And this was a representative sample. So more people uh, who supported Brexit, uh, you know, the 52-48 ratio in this group, and they actually came up with some pretty, I would say, liberal, a pretty liberal position on the on the issue of immigration. Because once they had had the experts presenting the pros and cons, they listened to the evidence. They then came to the conclusion that actually for the UK, a slightly more flexible approach to to immigration was a better a better approach. So I don't have concerns that citizens assemblies would would come up with a weird and wonderful. Uh, ideas that would be impossible for anyone to implement. Hmm. Well, the I think it's it, there's there's that famous quote that's that's like often attributed to to Churchill, but I don't I don't think there's any evidence that he actually said it. There's there's nothing written down. I tried to find it once, but uh, that like the word the worst or the best argument against democracy was a five minute conversation with your average voter, um, which I love. I love the quote, but yeah, I don't, I'm, there's no there's no proof it was actually Churchill. But I, I'm interested about that that Kingston air pollution citizens assembly. I hadn't I wasn't aware of this case. Um, like, what were the the conclusions they that that came out of that? Was it like a physical policy, like Im implementations that, that came out of that? Was it like a physical something? Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it was um, an e event organized by Involve, who are the people who organize these types of events. And they took a representative sample. I think it was quite a small sample. I think it was about 30 people from different parts of Kingston, different backgrounds, different uh, sort of eth ethnic origins and so on. Uh, gender balanced and they looked at the issue of air quality and some of the recommendations they came forward with so this i think reported at the beginning of this year um, were things like making sure that um, tough measures were taken around schools just to 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 reduce the impact of air pollution on on children as they're going to school uh, to push hard on uh, rollout of electric vehicles 
um, and a number of, of quite sensible invest in public transport, all the things you'd expect. Now that then went to the the relevant committee on Kingston Council. I must say at that point, I'm not sure what, I, I don't know what the outcome of that that was, but clearly uh, that was a an exercise that uh, the, the participants thought was of value and came up with some sensible solutions. So I hope that the committee uh, took those on board. Okay, I'll I think just the, the final thing I'd say, of course, is that for politicians, what this can do is then to some extent provide protection in that they, a, a group of, of independent people, not politically aligned, have come up with some solutions that then politicians implement. It's, it's convenient, frankly, for politicians to be able to say, well, actually, it wasn't us that came up with these ideas. The, the people who came up with these ideas were people like you, uh, and this is what they've recommended. Mm. Yeah, it kind of exculpates them from from any kind of responsibility. It's like, oh, it's just the will of the people. Like, well, <laughs> um, so one of the things I, w- I wanted to talk to you about was um, the, the the name of your organisation, um, Unlock Democracy, kind of implies that we we have like a serious problem with our our democracy in in Britain. Like, do you think we've got like a um, a democratic deficit as such, or would your argument be that like our our, our democracy as such just isn't isn't functioning like what would be the your your view on that i don't think our democracy is functioning particularly well um, if you look at the surveys of of trust in uh, trust in politics and institutions i think that the, the, one of the most recent surveys put the uk at the bottom of the pile with only russia below us wow uh, that's okay. not a good position for us to be in um, so there are issues around our democracy, and, and frankly, the voting system clearly is one of those. It's not acceptable um, for people to, for instance, have to make a decision. Basically, there's no point in me voting. I was on a, a call yesterday with uh, an organisation called Politica, which is a group of, of young people who, are, who have joined forces with another think tank called Radix. And one of the people on the call was saying, well, lots of my friends, I asked them, why did you vote? And they said no. And when asked the question, why not? Well, I didn't vote because I'm in a safe seat where they, the, the, the incumbent always gets elected with a 15 or 20,000 majority. And frankly, me voting for someone else is a complete waste of time because I know it will make absolutely no difference to the outcome. So a political system which uh, gives a party, a, an 80-seat majority on the basis of 43% of the vote, and then leaves them to believe that they are entitled to take whatever action they want on the basis of that minority of the vote uh, is unacceptable in my view, and is not a, uh, a modern and particularly uh, professional consensual way of, of carrying out politics. So. I mean, the other aspect in which I think our democracy has failed is on the issue of House of Lords. Um, you know, we, we are one of the very few, um, I think possibly Papua New Guinea might have a similar sort of uh, second chamber as ours, but, but you know, nowhere in the world has a, a, a system that, that has uh, people who, yeah, sometimes perform a, an effective role, but people who are there as legislators because either their great 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 grandfathers sort of took control of a large chunk of, of England 
um, or because they have uh, invariably, and this is true of all the political parties, donated either a huge amount of money uh, to a political party or spent a lot of time working for them. That's not a terribly uh, appropriate or, or informed way of uh, setting up your second chamber. So that's another aspect, I think, in which our democracy is, is, not, is really not up to scratch. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the 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 forty three percent for Boris Johnson's government to give them an eighty seat majority isn't even like the most extreme example of how that can think um, function. I think Blair's largest majority came with thirty seven percent of the vote. Um, but uh, what would you say to the yeah. criticism? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what would you say to the criticism of that? Um, I, I raised the issue of of proportional representation with um, with Peter Hitchens actually when I when I was talking to him. Um, on the podcast, and he he would argue that one of the th- one of the benefits of first past the post is that it does provide like a strong government, regardless of of, of the yeah. Well, the, the, I'm just like this is just his his argument that it provides a strong government, like on even when the country may be divided and unsure of the direction, and that that in itself is a virtue. Well, I, I was he saying that with a straight face because he was, of course, he was he was he, he really was, was, was he? Yeah. okay. <laughs> Well, where where has he been in the last five years? Because <laughs> we, we've we, we've got a first past the post electoral system, and I don't think anyone could argue that in the last five years we've had five years of strong and stable government. We haven't. Mm-hmm. We've had absolute chaos. Uh, so I'm surprised that he dared to deploy that still uh, as an argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at countries around around Europe, for instance, which have a tradition of uh, of vote PR as a voting system and coalition governments, uh, you know, Germany, for instance, they have provided strong and stable government over decades. So, you know, first past the post, as we have seen in the last five years, is absolutely no guarantee of a strong and stable government. Uh, and uh, what of what it is a guarantee, of course, is that um, large numbers of people will be completely disenfranchised, mm. and that the views of uh, Brexit voters, frankly, um, who you know, Nigel Farage knew in the run-up to the, the December election last year um, that he probably wasn't going to get anyone elected, but he, they would have got loads and loads of votes. Um, none of them could have been represented in Parliament because of our, our voting system. The Greens, who again got millions of votes, mm. uh, the Lib Dems, who got millions of votes, and then, of course, you have the quirks of, of our first-past-the-post system that meant that, uh, for instance, the SNP in Scotland got far, far, far more members of parliament elected uh, than the Liberal Democrats, who actually got far more votes than the SNP. So our system is all over the place in terms of what it, uh, what it is saying and how the views of electors, because it's the, the views of the electors that matter how they are represented uh, in Parliament. So I think the, the, the first past the post is strong and stable has completely uh, died as, a, you know, as, a, a, as an excuse for a system which um, very few countries in the world, certainly in Europe, use. Uh, and most parties, I mean, it would know, be interested to see whether finally, for instance, the Labour Party come out in favour of uh, PR, the Labour Party members, so that's members of the Labour, par- Labour Party as opposed to members of Parliament in the Labour Party, three quarters of them are in favour of PR. Wow, three quarters? Now, three quarters are in favour of PR. Now, the Labour Party m- members of Parliament may still be thinking that 
you know, one last one last heave and they will finally get over the finishing line by themselves and in turn be able to benefit from what you described earlier under Tony Blair of getting elected with a massive majority and on a minority of the vote. But I think they're kidding themselves um, and they will end up disenfranchising large numbers of Labour voters if they insist on sticking with first past the post. The government are changing the, the boundaries in terms of the parliamentary boundaries, which will the, the Conservatives will gain a significant number of seats from. And who knows, in, in three or four years' time, the impact of, of Brexit and Boris Johnson on Scotland may have forced the position in such a way that Scotland has left. And at that point, um, Labour's, Labour's prospect of, of being in government uh, has evaporated permanently, certainly as a, the sole party of, of government. And if they stick to uh, a rigid support for first past the post, they will just guarantee that they will never be in government and Labour voters will end up being disenfranchised by them in, in millions. Mm. So then high, so one of the things that, that you mentioned actually was the, the loss of trust in, in our institutions. Um, and this is something I've, 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 I've been concerned about myself over the past sort of five years is just how, and, and not even just the loss of trust, like the, they, uh, they just don't function like they're sp- supposed to in, in a lot of ways and a lot of different parts of, of the things that we would consider to be part of like a, a healthy and functioning democracy, like a free and fair press, um, a parliament, uh, like a, a legislative body that is interested in you know, making and scrutinizing legislation. Um, that just doesn't really seem to be what parliament does anymore. Um, and, and, you know, the, there's, there's a big list of, uh, of, 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 of problems with a lot of our institutions. Like how, how like w- where would your proposal to be to, where, where do we start in, in hoping to try and rebuild A, some trust and B, some functionality to, to the institutions of democracy? Especially when like Gen Z and millennials are, are, are trending increasingly authoritarian. They just sort of don't care about democracy because I feel like it's probably just failed them essentially uh, through their entire lifetime. Like, like, I don't remember a time in Britain in my lifetime like that in, w- in which I was at least like mildly c- cognizant of politics where I felt the government were at least trying to do good things. <laughs> um, so your word well, well, I think part of that is, is uh, to some extent is tone, the tone adopted by politicians. So if politicians go out of their way, as I think some Conservative members of Parliament did in relation to uh, the judiciary, or some Labour politicians went out of their way uh, in terms of their views of the BBC uh, to attack them and question their legitimacy. Uh, I'm worried, for instance, that the next onslaught we're going to see is that um, the Conservative government wants to introduce introduce voter identification for elections, which means that people have to provide a driving license and so on. And, and the evidence is very clear that that will discriminate against young people. It will dim- discriminate against people from BME backgrounds. That what the government might do in the run-up to the May council elections is they might start spreading stories, as we've seen Trump do, about massive voter fraud 
uh, to, to then justify the introduction of voter ID, but in the process end up damaging our democratic process and make people feel that the outcome, whatever it is, is, is fake and, and lots of people have been sort of stuffing ballot boxes when there's absolutely no evidence of that. So part of it, I think, is down to politicians not attacking experts, not attacking the judges as, as enemies of the people, uh, and recognising that those institutions are are there as independent bodies that are not there to be the mouthpiece of government. And whether it's a, a Conservative government, a Labour government, a coalition government with the Lib Dems or with the Greens, the fact is that those institutions are never going to be in line with uh, with with the government's position. Another thing that the government should should avoid doing, in my view, is stacking those institutions with their preferred people. And this is what we're seeing happening on an accelerating basis um, of interference in, in uh, the selection panels for appointments to public bodies, where uh, the government are seeking to influence that to make sure that the people who get appointed uh, to these bodies are of their sort of type, so to speak. Mm. And again, that, that is highly damaging for institutions because they shouldn't be seen to be um, politically aligned. The independence of them depends on them not being politically aligned. So I think that is part of the process. Politicians not uh, using, you know, taking cheap, cheap shots. I mean, obviously, um, what has changed since the Brexit vote is that the cheap shot, which used to be against the European Union, uh, now they've got to find another another organisation to, to, to fire at or to blame for whatever, uh, whatever fa failure there might be. I mean, I think the institutions are if we were talking about the, the BBC or the judiciary, I think that, that they, I mean, the fact, for instance, that the BBC was attacked both by Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson during the run-up to the general election sort of suggests they're probably doing about the right thing. Uh, the judiciary were attacked by government, uh, although I think the government would find it hard to, to identify anything that the judiciary did that wasn't simply applying the law. So, you know, the Supreme Court um, didn't wasn't trying to impose the law on the government, a, a new law. What they were trying to do is to make sure that Parliament's rights of, of sovereignty uh, was retained in relation to Parliament being able to discuss and debate things that the government thought that they shouldn't. So, um, I think we've got to be more protective of our of our institutions. If you look at the institutions we have in the United Kingdom. There are very, very few countries around the world who have institutions that have the reputation that, that our, the positive reputation that ours do. And I think whatever, even if they sometimes irritate, now as a, an ex-Liberal Democrat, I always moaned about the fact that the BBC didn't give enough coverage to the Lib Dems. Well, you know, if all the politicians from all parties are moaning at some point about an organisation, as I said a few moments ago, that probably means it's doing the right thing. Mm. I mean, the BBC is a difficult one. Um, I often have a, a debate with a, a friend of mine about whether the BBC is left wing or right wing. Um, well, I think you've revealed the fact that hopefully it's about in the mm. middle of, of it's neither left nor right. And on yeah. the whole is, is impartial, is trying to ask questions of politicians, whoever they might be. Yeah, I mean, I find that like gen the, 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 the accusation I, I would say that you could throw at them that would stick would be that they're pro-establishment that they're, they, they kind of tend to, to support the status quo as such, 
Um, but like that's not always the worst thing. The, the, but there's obviously there's obviously areas in which they they could improve quite a lot. Um, I mean they 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 were quite they've been quite uh, heavily criticised on their 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 kind of false equivalency on some issues in their attempt to actually be more impartial that they sometimes present two opposing viewpoints as totally equal. So they'll have like two people uh, on on either side of like a an issue and you'll have one one of the things that like it'd be like you'd have so i think uh, tim shipman talked about uh some of the remain campaigns criticisms of, of the bbc coverage of the brexit debate where they would have like three like leading like economists or like heads of industry and then on the other side you'd have like some 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 crackpot <laughs> just like uh, espousing stuff that no one else believed but like that they had to present it as being two equal sides of a debate and i feel like the bbc has actually lost their ability to in a way go hard at, at people who are just spouting rubbish because they're afraid of being accused of being of not being impartial because like even questioning in in some in some senses especially by journalists in in the last few years has become seen as like attacks and unfairness. Like if you're, if you're pushing something and like really making someone explain their point of view and saying, where's the evidence? Like, why do you think this? I, th I feel like it's become like, that's become seen as an attack on, on someone. Like, it, whereas that was, that that's, that's the, that's what we need the press for. Like, that's what they're there to do. Yeah, but I agree. And and what what we don't need is uh, what they have in the US, for instance, with Fox News, where you know it, it shouldn't call itself Fox News. It should just call it well uh, until it changed its position, of course, until it it realised that Trump was on his way out. It should have mm -hmm. just called itself you know the mouthpiece of Donald Trump because yeah. there wasn't any news component to what they were they were doing. That's not what we want here. No. Um, we do want an organisation that is capable of asking uh, everyone, whoever they are, difficult questions, and as long as they're well researched, then you know I think anyone should be put on on, on the spot mm. by them. Yeah, the Fox News thing is, is is funny. Like Rupert Murdoch knows when uh, when the tide is turning. I think that is that that's the that's the lesson to learn there. Um, but so like Brexit, Brexit clearly was something that that challenged a lot of the of the maybe the institutions that had been crumbling sort of behind the scenes in their effectiveness and it really like laid out some of the some of the problems with a lot of our modern institutions like do you think covid's actually gone and, and pushed that a whole into a whole new level of of watching like the dysfunction of 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 the press or um of of parliament generally to be able to to hold government to account um or legislate for things in in the 21st century do you think it's kind of like laid bare a lot of the problems with with our institutions yeah um i mean i guess i think that the, the main uh, the, the main issue in 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 my view that that covid has flagged up is the fact that as a nation we remain one of the most centralized uh, in in Europe or possibly even the world in terms of how how many levers Whitehall has to pull compared to how many levers uh, can be pulled at a local level and whereas other countries Germany in particular for instance had a, a system to deal with Covid that was 
one that was delivered uh, by uh, local authorities and, and regionally, um, yes, with advice and support from central government, but I was able to do that much more effectively, whereas the UK automatically, and I would say partly through political dogma, uh, thought that the solution to this would be to get in Serco or Capita or you know whichever or Deloitte uh, to run things from the centre. Uh, unfortunately, often appointing people who seem to have quite close connections with the Prime Minister or people around him, not necessarily appointed on on merit, who have then created an absolute shambles in terms of a, a test and trace system which it still isn't functioning even though billions of pounds has been spent at it uh, and i think ideologically the government didn't want to rely on on local authorities because they've never had an agenda which is about giving power to local authorities something that i as an organization unlock democracy is very much in favor of uh, and we're now, I think, suffering the consequences of trying to tackle it in a centralised, uh, centralised way. So I think that's for me the main, the main lesson uh, that we've learned. And and I mean, I, I'm worried that we will, uh, you know, a, a bit like the Brexit issue in in my view, that we will end up with with such. Um, uh, mistrust of government of doctors vaccines that the whole thing will become uh you know uh, really hard to to get the nation to respond um collectively to an issue and that it'll become a, a bit of a you know just as wearing a mask not quite so much in the uk as it did in the us became a bit of a sort of culture war that we will now have whether or not to vax to, to 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 accept being vaccinated as part of a, of a culture war, and I don't think that's um, that's very helpful. It's not very scientific, mm -hmm. and I think longer term, you know, uh, there are decisions that we may think only affect us individually, but often have a, an impact on the people around us. Um, I mean, I agree with you that the I think what what we've what we haven't really had, and this I think is partly down to the way the government have handled this issue, is we haven't had perhaps the informed debate about the impact that COVID has had that we should have done, and it should include obviously the economic consequences, the mental health consequences, the impact on on children. I must say that I have. I have smiled rather wryly when I've listened to Conservative members of Parliament uh, in the last few weeks saying how important it was that we had all the information out there about the impact of the government's uh, proposals in relation to COVID. And I was thinking, oh, a few years ago, we did actually have quite a big debate. Oh, it's about Brexit, wasn't it? Where we actually, we were calling for the government to make evidence, uh, the evidence available of the, the, the economic impact of that. And, and oh, those same people didn't seem to be quite as keen then. So, yes, I think we do need to have the, all the information that's available. And the government hasn't been willing to, to, to provide it. It's always been very late, if available at all. And if you want people to, a bit like a citizen's assembly, if you want people to, to come to a collective conclusion on something, you need to be sharing much more of the information so that people feel they've been party to a decision uh, rather than simply having it imposed on them from above. 
I think that's that's probably one of the, the biggest issues that we had in in terms of the the entire COVID debate. Like like you're right, we, it became became so polarized. And it's it's it, that's a scary trend. I mean, it's it's going. We're going very much the direction of America in in those kind of things. In which, like, if you said, you know, maybe wearing masks isn't as effective as we think, or you know, maybe it's not that good for our mental health that we can't see anyone's faces, especially for like elderly folks or, or who have dementia, and it can be confusing. And the fact that we couldn't even have that discussion like whether it was worth it, like trade-off wise, because it very, very well could be. Like if like, I'm, I'm not enough of, a, of, of an expert on it, but you know, I at least feel we could have had that discussion a little more openly than if you're against this, you're a bad person who wants people to die. Like that's not a, that's not a healthy place to be um, with the debate. <laughs> but like, how do you see us trying to trying to bridge that gap that that we're we're trending towards in America? Because obviously, there's been then periods in the past where 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 the country is is polarized quite heavily, and then then it's kind of swung back towards everyone being a little more centrist about it. And it, there's there's just there's you know theories that this is just kind of the way that the populations go. Like we swing to the extremes, and then we come back to the middle. Uh, like, do you think there's anything that that we can do to to try and like encourage a little more reasonable discussion amongst each, uh, um, like amongst like the populace or and um, in parliament and amongst the, the people who are actually making the decisions, especially as you say, to, to try and make people feel like they're party to the decisions that are being made rather than it feels like a, like a diktat being handed down from on high. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that what has happened in the US will actually help that process. Uh, if, if Trump had continued as president, then I think this would have been you know, an accelerating sort of degenerative, degenerative, well, I think I've got too many, too many <laughs> T's and I's in there, but uh, process. So I, I hope that Biden and, and Biden has has made a very clear pitch that he is the unity man. He's the person who's worked across the divide in the US. And, and I, I think he will genuinely attempt to do that. So um, the evidence that, that you referred to earlier about young people sort of supporting a populist sort of populist approach. Um, I think if you're referring to the survey that I'm aware of, I think what that confirmed was that they were supportive in the first term of the populist, but not necessarily in the, the second term. So it may be that people, you know, they, they can be amused by people like uh, Trump and believe his rhetoric initially that he was going to make America great again and that he had the interests of, of the, the, you know, the Rust Belt uh, at heart. Uh, whereas at the end of four years, when they look back at what he did in terms of, uh, for instance, not, be, not being willing to reveal his own tax returns and implementing policies which overwhelmingly benefited the wealthiest in American society, that they, they may have been slightly put off by a populist appeal which actually didn't really deliver uh, mm. anything for them. So uh, hopefully people will, you know, the US will be providing a different kind of uh, of example uh, with with Biden. I mean, how do we stop descending into uh, a populist agenda? Um, maybe the departure of Dominic Cummings is part of that because clearly uh, his agenda has always been uh, disruptive, um, take no prisoners, including prisoners within the Conservative Party. Uh, and uh, so his, his departure may in fact mean that the Prime Minister is going to try to uh, play the part more of the, 
you know, the, the, the London mayor character who was bringing London together uh, for the Olympics uh, rather than a disruptive person who was, you know, the bull in the china shop who was going around smashing up all of our institutions, which is what uh, uh, Dominic Cummings was uh, devoted to doing. So maybe the government have in fact taken that decision. Now, I mean, the Brexit agenda, which I think, I mean, you said, is it, was that caused by our institutions? I suppose to some extent it was. Uh, it was caused by, I think, people feeling that there were certain parts of the country where they had no opportunity or fewer opportunities than in London or, or the southeast. And that is true. And the level of investment that we've seen um, in the southeast has been been greater. So uh, one way of trying to address the, the, the perhaps the, the inclination to support people who will promise anything uh, to get to power is to to actually see the leveling up agenda happening mm. now in an environment where covid uh, has absolutely sort of smashed the public um, sort of public purse so to speak and created a level of indebtedness for the country that we haven't seen since the second world war if the chancellor is genuinely committed to that leveling up agenda he can only achieve that by i would suggest tax increases that are going to have to hit the richest hardest i mean he you, you know we we we've got what a hundred percent borrowed a hundred percent of gdp i mean unprecedented that's not the sort of thing that you can easily resolve by you know, small tax increases and a little bit on VAT here, a little bit on, on income tax there, you've got to look at real, you know, major items like capital gains tax, because uh, otherwise we're going to be trying to, you know, clear this deficit uh, for the next 30 or 40 years. And as long as we're doing that, you know, as long as we're paying back, um, trying to pay, pay down the debt, there will be far less money available for that leveling up agenda. So, you know, he's to, to, to heal the problems that we've got, that's got to happen. People in, in the Northeast, Northwest have got to feel that they're part of um, the, the, the UK. They're not the, the poor cousins, so to speak. And I suppose the final thing I would say is that perhaps one of the best ways of doing that is actually about devolution and giving their politicians, and we've seen it to some extent with people like Andy Burnham, for instance, give them more power to take decisions because local politicians on the whole are slightly more trusted than national ones. Yeah, well, I guess I feel like the, the, the local politicians tend to be more kind of looked at as they're, they're fighting for us because they really are like they they like even if it's a even if it's a totally selfish thing like Andy Burnham's like I have to look like in the most cynical approach to every he's just saying I have to fight for these people because they have to think I'm fighting for them for my own career but even then he is still like trying to represent their their interests like like I don't believe that he's quite he's quite that that selfish but like even at the most cynical level of that you could you can you can make that you can like sort of make that case but I think you're definitely right. Um, the 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 opportunities for people is, is a big one. Like one of the one of the discussions that that I I listened to fairly recently was about like what is the optimum level of inequality in a, a society, and that sounds really like I don't know evil almost. But the their essential point was that like you have to have like in all of the societies that have been 
that have succeeded the best thus far in, in history. There's been like a, a certain level of inequality because people need something to, to strive for eventually. And there's no way to completely flatten levels of wealth without like just like, there's essentially no way to do it well. Like people that, that doesn't like dispossess people and make people frustrated with the amount of money being taken away or discourages innovation or opportunities for people but that in britain today we have such a high level of inequality that there's so many people who are stuck at like zero with no chance to get beyond that and it just means that they, they they're just like either they don't vote or they vote for the the most like ridiculous like institution smashing people that you can think of just because they they want to throw a spanner in the works and i i think that that was like a to a certain extent something that drove the brexit vote and they're just going you know like what the fuck can we do let's just like tear the whole thing down and it drives like a level of kind of anger from people that that i think if you as you said kind of tried to to, to level up especially in the north and in areas that have been um traditionally kind of neglected um, that, that, that can be, that can be addressed. Like one of the things actually that, that, um, that you could see before the Brexit vote was in like, for example, in Blackpool compared to like central London, the amount of money that was cut from like the, the, the welfare budgets and the, the, the investment budgets like per person was something like something ridiculous, like, like was 700 pound per person was cut. Um, from 2010 with austerity in Blackpool compared to London was maybe like a hundred pounds per person. So obviously everyone suffered, but the people who were already worse off in, in sort of more, uh, more uh, neglected parts of the UK have, had, had actually then suffered further. And that's what led to that kind of, well, you know, we need to do something. We need to send some sort of message to, to the yeah. powers that be. And, and like, well, yeah, there was 3 million yeah, people man, I, voted I, I, in the Brexit vote that didn't vote in the 2015 general election. So that means there was 3 million people who felt that the option to, to leave or remain in the EU was, a, and I, I, would, I, would, I would bet that that was a majority of people voting to leave the EU, that, that 3 million. Mm. But like that, that 3 I'm, million I'm sure. people were more convinced that that was a good thing to vote in than any of the parties that presented themselves in 2015. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not entirely surprised because, of course, uh, for instance, European elections in the UK have traditionally been an opportunity for people to express views which are perhaps often more about anger and dissatisfaction than they are necessarily about, uh, about the European Union. And I'm afraid the referendum was that in spades in terms of, of being a, an opportunity for people to express their view. I mean, I, I'm... I'm sorry, because I suspect that if, if the, you know, their, their view was that this would suddenly improve people's lives materially, well, in parts of the Northeast and Northwest, which are, uh, for instance, manufacturing heavy in terms of, of jobs, uh, leaving the EU is going to have completely the opposite effect. Uh, it's going to make it a lot harder um, to, to succeed. Uh, so... I can understand people's anger. I'm not quite sure, however, that the European Union was the right body of, against which to uh, to direct their anger. And it's it's more about uh, sort of domestic policies uh, over many decades from a range of political parties, uh, which have failed to to level up. 
And I'm afraid I don't see much evidence that that is going to change. Uh, as I said a few moments ago, the fact is that financially we are in a really critical position. So the amount of money available to, to throw at this problem uh, is far smaller than it was, would have been pre-COVID if indeed the government had the will to do it. And of course, you know, there, there's some view that the departure of Dominic Cummings might lead to a, uh, a softer approach from the government. But what it might also lead to is a, a, a reduction in the focus on levelling up and more a sort of revert to type of supporting uh, the Shire counties and, and, and the southeast. So we'll have to see what that, what that leads to. But I mean, on the question of inequality, uh, the UK has very, very high levels of inequality, uh, comparable to that of the US. And the evidence, whether it's from the US or the UK, is that when you have those levels of inequality, uh, you have very sig significant levels of unhappiness, you have very significant levels of ill health, and you have a very significant lack of opportunities. So mm. um, these are, again, these are not issues that are down to the present government, past government, but you probably need to go back decades to, to work out why we haven't managed to uh, to address these issues, but, but we need to do, we need to adopt, a, in my view, something that is closer to the, the Scandinavian model where they don't have the, you know, the, the person who's on the, the shop floor earning a hundredth of what the person at the top of the organization is is earning as we have in the uk because that is going to fuel that sense of uh, disillusionment um and you know is highly corrosive mm. i mean one of the things i am positive i am sort of optimistic about is that post covid or like so, so some point next year and the next sort of 18 months two years we're gonna have to look at, at, at rebuilding in a way that um especially with that level of debt that we haven't seen since sort of post-World War II. But post-World War II, we, we, we took some, some huge steps forwards in terms of, uh, like we, we created the welfare state, the NHS, there was a lot of council houses built. And that was, that was done with, um, a level, with a, I think the deficit was 250% of GDP at that point. And obviously we're not on that extreme um, a moment yet. But I think that next, the next two years is really going to prove whether modern monetary theory has, has anything, anything sort of good to offer the world or if it's just sort of a wild lefties theory. Um, so do you think that like this is going to give us like sort of next year or two post once we start to like try and reassess where we're at post-COVID, post-Brexit, and we have to try and rebuild a little bit in terms of like the, the economy, the country, our society? Do you think that gives us a, an opportunity to to maybe make some changes and 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 bring forward a citizens assembly and and do some positive things? Well, I, I guess that's um, you know very much in the hands of the government. They they could choose to do that. So, for instance, a citizens assembly. I know that a proposal has actually gone into government from uh, Graham Allen, who used to be a, a Labour member of Parliament, who's been leading on the on these issues. Okay. Uh, to, to put together a citizens assembly so we'll, we'll see if the government responds positively to that the, these are things that can be done at relatively low cost and in my view would help rebuild a level of trust uh, in government uh, we, we definitely need a, a, a green deal uh, as as happened in the us under roosevelt you know or a, a deal that um, a new deal that that uh, does things on a large scale because the fallout from from covid uh, some of the projections are that something like one out of four one out of four shops are going to shut permanently mm. um, that means a very very large number of uh, 
often young people uh, out of work. So we, we might need to see government, uh, it might have to be this conservative government, rolling out major programmes of government, something which pre-COVID they would probably never have envisaged doing. But the scale of the problem that we're going to have uh, economically and from an unemployment point of view is going to require big decisions. Now, whether Boris Johnson can do that as prime minister, whether there is any evidence in his past of him being able to um, rise to a, you know, a challenge which no prime minister has had to face since the Second World War, whether he's got the capacity to do that, I don't know. Um, he's not really, I mean, this is his first test. I wouldn't say that, for instance, as London mayor, that he really had to do anything on that scale because he he inherited the Olympics. The Olympics had already been secured. It wasn't something that he had to fight for. It was already in the pipeline when he became mayor. Um, so you know, let's see if he's capable of, of rising to this challenge and making that shift from which lots of people have been talking about today, that shift from a campaigning organisation around him with all the people from the Vote Leave campaign who are campaigners and very effective ones, changing that into a, a form of government that is able to deliver uh, large programmes of government. So I think the jury is out yet on whether he has the capacity to do that. Yeah. I mean, the positive, one of the positives is, uh, is I really think that, that COVID kind of broke the mold on what a lot of people considered possible from a conservative government in terms of fiscal spending. And like, like Rish, the fact that Rishi Sunak was, was happy to roll out these massive spending programs, the fact that they're talking about tax, tax rises for the richest, they're talking about seriously increasing capital gains tax and expanding the scope of it. Um, I think that, 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 that this crisis has kind of broken that inertia of ideological sort of dogma, especially within the, the free marketeer side of the Conservative Party, who would have never even considered like government spending. Um, so potentially, hopefully, maybe I'm just being a hopeless optimist, that with this, this might be a, a step in the right direction. Um, but sort of to, 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 to look at wrapping up here, um, Tom, is like how can anyone that's listening either get involved with Unlock Democracy or help out or, you know, sign up, see what you're doing or, or like put something forward in maybe their own community in, in order to, to push your, your ideas or thoughts. Sure. Well, thanks, Josh, for giving me the chance to, to, to plug, plug us at the end. So uh, <laughs> unlockdemocracy.org.uk. So unlockdemocracy in one word, in one word, uh, .org.uk is our website where people can join as members. There are a number of campaigns that we're running at the moment that people can, can support without necessarily joining as a member. Uh, membership is, is cheap, at the, uh, cheap at half the price, I think at £2 a month uh, to, to join as a member or £1 for concessions. So, and if people are concerned about issues like making sure that we do have fair elections in the UK, if they're concerned about perhaps uh, making sure that they're local authority has more powers to deliver things locally, including tests and trace, uh, but is able to have more funds available to invest in things that they have identified as a priority as opposed to central government delivering that agenda. Uh, and if uh, ultimately what people want is some guarantees around the freedoms and liberties that we have cannot simply be uh, abolished 
by a simple majority in Parliament and uh, without a constitution, uh, we have no guarantee that by a simple majority those rights won't be abolished, um, that people should join us. And I'd, uh, I'd, welcome, uh, I'd welcome that. Well, that's a nice way to leave it. So uh, thanks very much. It was, uh, was a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.